This is the Breaking Down Incident Response Podcast. We are your hosts, Brian Betcher. And I am Michael Goff. Yes, this is another episode of Breaking Down Incident Response. Okay, we've got a great topic today. It's called, How Many Tricks Does It Take to Get to the Center? of a loggy pop. Uh, we do have a guest. I'm just going to run through a show summary right now. We're going to introduce our guest here and then we're going to go into some uh, sponsors of the show. We're going to talk about some newsworthy items. We don't have any malware of the month because I just didn't have time to analyze all the stuff I was looking at yesterday. It was pretty cool. So we'll have some of that for you uh, next episode. It's pretty bad. We're malware, we're malware people, right? We have had a couple months where we haven't had anything interesting to talk about. We see so much of the same thing. It doesn't make sense to mention it every month. Yeah, we're going, we're going through some transitional period here, but we'll get our act together soon. We got some tool worthy items to share. And then, of course, the topic of the day is SIM and SIM, um, I guess, configuration. We'll talk a lot about that. All right. So now a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Humio, a high-performance log management and analysis tool delivering real-time performance for system monitoring and investigation. By allowing users to ingest huge amounts of data on a single node for ad hoc queries and search without doing any indexing, Humio enables its users to monitor a system for errors, user volumes, transactions, registrations, or search on multiple parameters. Humio is available in both on-premise and cloud versions. Start a free trial of Humio today at humio.com. That is H-U-M-I-O dot com. This podcast is also brought to you by LogMD, the log and malicious discovery tool for Windows-based systems for IT, InfoSec, IR, and forensics professionals. It helps you assess your audit log settings against several industry standards, including the Windows Logging Cheat Sheet, so you can improve your logging to collect all the right things. LogMD can also be used to hunt for targeted, malicious, and interesting artifacts such as large registry keys, autoruns, WMI persistence, malicious PowerShell execution, and targeted log events that can then be collected by your log management solution. LogMD provides more details and easy-to-read reports than your EDR solutions can provide. We offer free, professional, and consulting licenses. Discover it. Discover LogMD today at log-md.com. Okay, let me introduce our guest. His name is Jim Schwar. He's a lead analyst for medical-type company, if I'm okay saying that, in the uh, healthcare field. So uh, he knows quite a bit about this topic. Jim, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, now for some newsworthy items. Our first article is by Wired. Wait a minute, you're taking the fun out of my me being on this podcast. On to our next topic. Newsworthy. <laughs> All right, so our next article, our first article is by Wired. The most expensive cyber attack ever. I thought this was interesting. This made the news this week, if you've been watching the news this week. Well, I guess it depends when you listen to the podcast. So uh, the week of the 20th of August, uh, this is July's podcast. Sorry, InfoSec Summer Camp interrupted our podcast uh, publishing, so we'll double up this month. But anyway, this week, there was the talk about the Wired Magazine article where uh, the most costly event, cyber attack in history, and it was this NotPetya attack that hit uh, Maersk and FedEx and everything else. And one of the quotes in here is interesting. The result was more than $10 billion in total U.S. dollars in total damages, according to a White House assessment confirmed to Wired by former Homeland Security Advisor Tom Bossert 
who at the time of the attack was President Trump's most senior cybersecurity-focused official. Bossert and the U.S. intelligence agencies also confirmed in February that Russia's military, the prime suspect in the cyber war, was targeting Ukraine. So a misstep of targeting ended up costing 10, or estimated costing all companies and all efforts, 10 billion with a B dollars. So uh, this is this is a great example of how much money does one invest in their InfoSec program as opposed to what might happen, right? This is the constant battle we have is how much do I spend to avoid getting nailed the long, you know, in the long term? And and 10 billion is a lot of money. Yeah. It, it the article says that Mer uh, had a 870 million, uh, FedEx 400 million, uh, Durex <laughs> uh, 129 million. Wait a minute. It, it just Durex, the list goes on. Is this the uh, uh, let's see the the company that makes uh, condoms? Durex. Yes. <laughs> so there's so many jokes there. I just I, I didn't I didn't know there was 129 <laughs> million to be had from uh, manufacturing. Okay. Of uh, those types of products, but hey, <laughs> a chocolate maker, Cadbury, $188 million, it's reported. You say that there's a lot of money, and I guess to be lost by falling short when it comes to your your information security program. But again, CEOs weigh the risks, right? It's It's such a small percentage that will actually be hit this hard. So why should I? I I'm willing to take that risk for our bottom line. And then if we do get hit, I can just make excuses like, well, it happened to all these other companies, right? Or you may have insurance. Cyber insurance may cover part of this, as we know it doesn't cover all of it, but it may cover part of it. I mean, Cadbury, I'm sure they're still in business, right? I don't eat Cadbury, so I couldn't tell you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's staggering how these numbers add up so quickly. And for what? Now, you and I were arguing about this uh, a few days ago. Debating. You didn't patch SMB, and and that's why it spread, right? Yeah, I have a perspective. I, I believe in our detection response. I'd love to hear your input here, Jim. That we have to almost look at it as, hey, I don't care if you're a lockdown user or an administrator. What I do from a detection perspective and logging or any other tool suite is going to be the same. What we're doing by locking things down is we're trying to reduce the probability or the quantity of things that will trigger things we investigate. One of the areas is patching, for example, is is the argument of, of, you know, everybody should patch your stuff. Completely agree here. But we can't patch it fast enough for these attacks. So, therefore, we have to look at the, again, great example here. I'll bet you even, what, a year later now, or it's more than a year later, a year and a half year later, that people still haven't blocked SMB in their environment. So, if something did get in, it would, you know, rip through their environments. Thus, why this is probably incredibly costly. In the U.S., the ISPs block SMB, which is why the U.S. did not get hit that heavy, as opposed to Europe, which did get hit very heavy, thus causing the, the massive uh, propagation of this SMB-type attack. So if I can't patch, you know, I can configure my stuff to not to do this. So I, I look at it as we have to consider, um, thus one of the things that Brian and I worked on was, you know, we keep getting these ransomware emails. Let's block those attachment types, and we just won't receive them. You know, that wasn't a patch. It was it was a physical change, much like blocking SMB, I think, has far more value. It's faster to do, in theory, uh, than worrying about testing and, and doing patches, which you can and should get around to doing. But I just don't think our industry can, can ex- execute patching as fast as, as one would like. That I completely agree with, but it's 
not always practical to patch your systems. I would assume that in the case of a company like Maersk, they have a ton of legacy systems that run really expensive equipment that have no replacement. The software isn't certified to run on fully patched systems, and they have a real significant risk of breaking their business processes by installing those patches. But that doesn't negate that they should have some other kind of compensating control in place to stop those SMB attacks. I mean, it's pretty simple to segment your network to not allow those highly vulnerable, valuable hosts to talk to each other. Yeah, I think, you know, these kinds of attacks, we've been seeing them, you know, for years. But, you know, we as defenders, as hunters, as incident responders, as security analysts, uh, we call it malware management, where we look at these analyst reports, we're going to talk about one in a second, where we pull out pieces of artifacts and say, you know, look, this is an important artifact. The next uh, two stories from now is is definitely a, a slam dunk in that aspect, where we take this artifact, we say, hey, we need to make this change. We need to look at this thing. We need to enable something that's normally not enabled and look for this stuff because we're seeing these behaviors and patterns and, and we have to be proactive about it. Two years before NotPetya, I think Microsoft came out and said, you need to turn off this SMB stuff. Um, you know, block it, do this, do firewall changes, etc. Uh, so Microsoft even had said, don't do this or block this or change this. And people just did not, right? So we have to really start looking at this stuff seriously and say, hmm, you know, should we disable this? Like, for example, uh, you know, the macros in Office documents. What was the other one? The... Uh, the auto-launching uh, that they said they weren't going to do. It was a feature, but they ended up patching it anyway because of... Yeah, I forgot what that was called, uh, where it automatically goes to the Internet and updates itself as far as a document. The fact that something like that occurred is uh, a great example of how we should review these kinds of reports and, and situations and say, how can we make some minor changes to try to avoid these kind of major catastrophes? And you know, security needs to step up and start making these recommendations, get them documented, and and you know, feed it up the chain, and and let's you know hope to see what what happens, uh, and tweak it that way. Again, patching is secondary, very important thing to do, but I think we can flip bits on SMB or macros or other things, blocking file types much quicker with a much less impact to business than than potentially testing every patch. And there's hundreds in some of these Microsoft updates. Um, you know, not to mention an Oracle patch, holy moly, or a you know Linux kernel update. Um, yeah, it takes testing and time, and I don't think we have that for a lot of these types of attacks anymore. I don't think that article did justice to how quickly and efficiently that malware spread. And I know a lot of people are focusing on, yes, install the patch because there was a vulnerability, but the way that that malware could move laterally by stealing credentials, that is something that you can't patch against. You have to configure against that. I mean, you just shouldn't be allowing a desktop machine to talk to another desktop machine. There's really not a legitimate business reason to have that happen. That's an excellent point, that east-west movement that you're talking about. Server types, servers of the same type, database to database, app server to app server. Right. Application server to app uh, application server, desktop to desktop. Right. Dev machine to dev machine. That should all be cut off. Right. If you're doing it right, you only allow the uh, approved north south network traffic or highly controlled. You can set up. That's what you're getting at. Right. Exactly. And the management network has access. Now, 
you, you get your domain admin popped and you, you've patched SMB. It's fully patched, but you still allowed all that traffic through. Good lesson. Yeah, here's a quote from the uh, Maersk thing. I saw a wave of screens turning black, 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 black. He says the PCs Jensen and his neighbor, neighbors quickly discovered were irreversibly locked. So that gives you an idea how fast that <laughs> the screens, <laughs> just from the guy looking around, how fast it hit him. Okay, moving on. Our next article is um, about the city of Atlanta. Right? Remember that one? Yeah, we've talked about this a couple times. Any experience with the city of Atlanta, Jim? <laughs> uh, you're you're East Coast, so no. Yeah, no, I don't have much experience with the city of Atlanta cyber attack. Again, we still don't know exactly the source. So there's some. There was some talk in our last time we talked about this that it was remotely done through an RDP guest, but the, it's the sheer cost of this that was interesting that caught this, and it's another update to something we've covered in the past. So the uh, city of Atlanta in, in March uh, cost taxpayers when they got nailed with this cyber attack, which is ransomware, uh, cost as much as $17 million, according to a report obtained by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and Channel 2 News. The seven-page document, marked confidential and privileged, identifies roughly $6 million in existing contracts, along with additional $11 million and potential costs associated with the March 22 attack. Uh, what is it? It's breathtaking in, quote-unquote, it's breathtaking in that they... They're having to do a complete overhaul. Don Hunt, a professor at Georgia State University's Andrew Young School of Policy Studies, told Channel 2. They have been very busy for the past few months. Because we talked about this last time, they were going to go through a rebuild. So the fact that either A, their backups weren't adequate, or B, they were taking the opportunity to uh, refresh, enhance, and upgrade the environment. They kind of bid it all off and, and basically rebuilt. But that's that's a fascinating amount of money. By comparison, a ransomware attack that hit Colorado's Department of Transportation earlier this year is expected to cost $2 million. So here's an example of our taxpayer money, well, those in Georgia and Atlanta's taxpayer money uh, is being used for, you know, whoops, really poor security. Now, how many other governments, city, state, local governments have a similar thing? Even the federal governments have a similar scenario where, you know, this kind of money is, uh, taxpayer money is being spent. It can put, you know, states that are, barely, you know, in the black, seriously in the red very quickly. So step it up, yeah. governments. Right. Well, I mean, we don't know if $17 million in security funding would have prevented this, obviously, but I, I can't see how it wouldn't have helped a little. <laughs> I'm thinking $17 million, I can do a lot. <laughs> yeah. But that's just me. I think that kind of, that might highlight a point, you know, that kind of a number makes it seem like they did not have an IR team on retainer and that they weren't ready to respond to such an incident. Oh, yeah. Because if you go in and you're saying, hey, our entire city's down, and you go out to get an IR team to come in, that number is going to be astronomical. Oh, yeah. And they had multiple IR firms working on this per the last article that we covered a couple of podcasts ago. But, yeah, it's, you know, it's costly. I mean, that's the point here is these big events are costly. So please listen to what we are suggesting in our podcast. And, and do better at these things because they can really help you. Okay, up next, our last topic, uh, newsworthy, is APT32 yep. article or a blog article by FireEye. So going back to the fact of malware management, as we call it, you can go to malwaremanagement.org and, and read about what I called malware management. I, I came up with this term about ooh, six, seven years ago, uh, much coined after vulnerability management as a way to start obtaining. And, and six, seven years ago, the amount of reports that were published were a lot fewer than they were today. And there's a lot more today. 
because there's so many more people reporting on these sort of things. So the idea here is read reports from IR firms like the FireEye Mandiants and anybody else, SecureWorks, you know, pick one. Even some of the AV ones are really good. Even the government ones about the retail POS malware was actually very good. And you're looking at, at, at the, the tactics, the techniques and, and procedures that they use and you pull out of that and you say, what's interesting in here that I am doing or I'm not monitoring or I'm not tweaking or maybe something I need to turn on that will help me here, right? Obviously, we just covered the, the ransomware scenario in SMB and there is an option. You can do some testing. You can significantly improve uh, that situation. But this one was interesting because it, it covers a topic we're going to, or touches on the topic we're talking about tonight. And one of the things this particular malware did in the ABT32 was... A scheduled task named Windows Scheduled Maintenance was created to run Casey Smith's Squibbly-Do app whitelisting bypass every 30 minutes. So uh, shout out to Casey and his application whitelisting bypass. So when you see these uh, red team pen testing kind of talks at various conferences, know that six months to a year later, the bad guys will be hopping on that. We, we have definitely seen that, Brian and I, in the behavior and, and log data in regards to like obfuscation that, that Daniel Bahannon talks about. And while these payloads can be dramatically uh, updated at the time of the delivery, the task launched a com scriptlet, SCT, um, investigate more of Casey's stuff on that. And the fact that it created a, t a scheduled task is kind of important because in Windows, by default, guess what? Scheduled tasks logging is disabled by default. So it's very important to turn on that log and collect that data. A, it's not very noisy. And B, it is a persistence location. A scheduled task is persistence. So this is an important thing here for people to understand is, is here's another example where, hey, what can I do to detect these kinds of things? I can't necessarily stop. I, I've got, I am so locked down. I've got application whitelisting. Oh, guess what? There is a link on Malware Archaeology that lists all the administrative utilities that we monitor uh, generically, and I recommend people monitor my talks. It has a link to the application whitelisting, uh, whitelisting GitHub page that Casey referred me to to use as the master source now, and, and this is the list, right? So there's there's 50 plus utilities that can be used. I think I added two to that list in the last uh, two three weeks, and so there are ways to get by this, right? We're just shrinking; it's a funnel. We're we're, we're reducing the amount of things that can occur, but when they find that way in, now how do I detect that they did that? And Turning on scheduled task in this case would have caught this attack dead cold. And it's just a great example of A, um, collecting something like this in the logs is something uh, that may or may not be covered by EDR in a lot of cases. And, and the fact that it's off by default in Microsoft Windows is, is sad and, uh, and not very voluminous and noise and very easy to parse to get exactly what you want. Changes and new creations of tasks. So um, that's the message I get out of this. A, practice malware management, read these reports. B, look for things like this that you're not doing or can do better. Any thoughts on that one? I fully agree with you on that. Um, logging of scheduled tasks is something that everybody should try and take on. Setting it up isn't very difficult, and the data that comes out of it is usually something that you would want to follow up on. Even if it's not something that is, that's malicious, it's probably a piece of software that isn't authorized to be running in your environment. Just take a look at them and then create a playbook on how to action it and follow through. Yep, I completely agree. Yeah, or there's things there that, that are legacy and need to be cleaned up, but they just keep trying to run and uh, someone put it in there long ago. 
I've seen a lot of that. Now, Michael, you mentioned a lot of things and I'm going to try to unpack malware management. So malware management is basically like we were doing um, a couple of weeks ago, going and looking at these talks, coming away from the talks at Hacker Summer Camp, DerbyCon, even reading articles, especially reading articles. We do that all the time on the new types of malware that, that come out, the new types of attacks that are hitting. And, um, and you saw in our last episode, the WMI stuff, we talked about WMI because we saw new tools coming out by security people that said, Hey, these are really cool attacks. I'm bypassing these controls. And, you know, in some ways it's bragging, but in notoriety, but in others, it's like, Hey, this stuff is out there. And so we need to take that and harden our defenses against those types of attacks. And that's what malware management is all about. Yeah. And I, I would say, and people ask me, you know, how do you know to do this stuff or where did you learn to do this stuff? This is where I learned to do this stuff. These reports, when I went to work in gaming, you know, I had all this knowledge. I worked at HP before. You know, Carlos Perez was a, was a colleague, right? And he was in Puerto Rico. I was in Wisconsin. And, you know, we chatted on some database stuff and, and hardening. And, you know, the, the amount of resources weren't, weren't much available. So as you come out of that and suddenly, you know, you get nailed in the gaming arena with the Chinese, you're like, okay, where do I start? I'm coming into this organization. My buddy and I, you know, said, all right, we're going to start creating this stuff. All right, well, what, what should we monitor for? Well, all the things we know. Well, okay, what other things? Let's look at the Stuxnet reports. Let's look at the interesting reports that are out there that have been published and see what kind of unique things are in there. Is there a pattern? So I could a spreadsheet and I put a bunch of X's and the types of directories they did, you know, because we had Big Fix and Splunk and all this stuff. And I said, okay, what kind of things can we cover to catch these kinds of things? Because these are the this is the kind of adversary I was dealing with as a Chinese attacking gaming. And uh, be darned if that did not work. And that's what started the cheat sheets. It's what started malware management. It's what started uh, the whole malware discovery uh, logic uh, over the years that, that we've uh, created and, and turned LogMD into. So that's how that started, and that's how people should look at this. It is definitely a good way to learn about how to deal uh, with these adversaries and how to, how to improve your, uh, your environment. Of course, an excellent example of malware management. Where do you start? Well, there's a link in the show notes. That's where you start. Yep. Okay. Next topic. All right. So our first topic is the MITRE attack framework, attack.mitre, M-I-T-R-E dot org. Why'd you bring this up? I brought this up because we're going to be talking about this in the future. So we're going to, we're going to touch on this now. Um, but I want to make people aware in regards to this topic being about logging that uh, I'm working on a project. And you got to stay tuned a little bit to uh, hear what we're going to be releasing in this aspect but uh, I want to start getting people to seriously consider the MITRE attack matrix as a way to map their defenses and or weaknesses and or gaps and or potential budget shortfalls. Because um, I think, uh, you know, the taxi stick stuff, I'm like, yeah, man, all right, whatever. You know, that means it's government projects. You got to have this capability to send stuff over to another tool. You gotta... But the MITRE attack stuff is, I think, dead on. And I wanted to point it out as a, a site-worthy item. Uh, start getting an idea of what it is, what's it about. Attend talks about it. Uh, we actually attended a talk at Besides Las Vegas in regards to actually from the MITRE people directly and how they started the project. Uh, they're doing some more work. Um, it's clear that the EDR environment has hopped on this as well. 
Uh, you'll see the two talks at Sands on this subject, mine and, and Devin Kerr and, and Roberto Rodriguez, uh, talking about the MITRE attack matrix. Logging is going to be, I think, a very important important part of this, and we'll cover more about that in a future uh, podcast, and we'll probably have something about that in, to be released. And so I wanted to get people to start thinking about that, saying, what kinds of things should I log for? Well, how about the kinds of tactics and procedures they're using or doing in the MITRE attack? Can you log for what the MITRE attack matrix does? Um, and so that's that's why it's in here. Excellent. Next, Harlan Carvey's blog. Jim. Yeah, Harlan Carvey, I've been a big fan of his for probably over a decade now. Every book that he writes is thought on of where people should start to figure out how they can get into incident response. His blog is just full of insightful tidbits about where our industry is probably going along with here are some fun new artifacts that you should try to detect in your environment. It's absolutely um, just one of the places that I do check on a regular basis. He's always updating, and everything that he produces and writes has been gold for me. And he has a very good tool in Red Ripper, so he's, he's famous for that. I sat next to him when he worked for SecureWorks at their uh, SecureWorks conference that I spoke at a few years ago. So, yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's a good one. And that's uh, easy to remember, Windows IR blogspot.com. Yeah, clearly. It's in the show notes, of course. Okay, so on to our next topic. Okay, we we got a few tools to talk about. The first is WinLogBeat. What is WinLogBeat? So for those that aren't familiar with uh, Elastic or Elk, the Elk Stack Elastic as a company, they make a logging, they make series, they make, well, there's probably, what, a dozen of them? Agents that they refer to as Beats agents. And in this case, WinLogBeats is the Windows logging Beats agent. And it would be equivalent to the Universal Forwarder or uh, Syslog agent or WLS uh, kind of, of agent, the Windows Logging Service, which is a government-based uh, logging agent. So it's the agent you would use on, say, a gray log environment, an elk environment, or our sponsor Humio's environment, and even potentially in Splunk as well, as a way to get your Windows logs to your log uh, management solution, your SIM. And so I wanted to mention it here, A, for two reasons. One, it is across several platforms. It's it's pretty much the primary one to use. Uh, NXLog would probably be another one to, to match here for open source free kind of thing. Uh, a lot of support because it's in the Elastic community and they've got lots of beats for various platforms, AWS and Linux and all that. And B, on Malware Archaeology, there is a sample of a WinLog beat configuration uh, YAML file. It's WinLog, it's WinLog beat YAML file that is specifically geared for Windows and has a lot of the typical things that we recommend you collect. So that's why it is on here for the uh, BDR choice for two on this uh, episode. And then FileBeat, kind of related. Yeah, FileBeat is, okay, now what if I want to run something like LogMD and I want to suck up that file or let's say DNS.log or IIS.log and I want to suck that file up to my log management solution FileBeat is the solution for that for multiple platforms. And uh, again, I just posted this week finally the FileBeat. I will be updating it with a new configuration because I've been playing a lot with it recently uh, for my home stuff. And FileBeat is how you send flat files to your log management solution. And again, Malware Archaeology has an example of that. It's specifically crafted for Humio and LogMD. 
but with a few tweaks, you can obviously send it to Elk or Greylog or, or anything else. But, you know, uh, Trihumio, they're, they're, thank you for sponsoring our show. And these are the two agents that uh, we wanted to talk about and tell people about and the fact that there's sample YAML files out there. I had a heck of a time trying to get the actual working examples. Matter of fact, on the Slack channel, uh, Megan was asking about her configurations. I went through the pain she did and the way that they do exclusions, you can do it multiple ways. I chose a different uh, path to do exclusions. And, and so I kind of sent her over there. I don't know uh, where that's at. But these examples help you get started and have things already pre-configured to give you an idea of what's there. Um, and there are some challenges with the file beat settings and knowing exactly what to tweak um, in regards to setting your files and making sure it stops or releases the file as we found. Handle, uh, as the file beat's reading a file, a handle's grabbed, your tool runs, it can't write the file, and you have some contention there, so you have to do stop at the end of the file, wait a few minutes, and then start again, that sort of thing. So there's lots of configuration there. But these two open free tool scenarios with samples at malware archaeology you can take a look at yeah and if you're if you need to do this don't start from scratch please don't start from scratch you'll save days rewind the podcast and figure out where these sample fires lo are located so jim uh you wrote down for tool worthy splunk why is splunk uh one of your tools of choice splunk is my tool of choice because it's great for doing quick triage as long as you have the right log sources in an environment one of the Key things in IR is doing that quick triage, figuring out, is this incident something we need to dive in deeper to? And Splunk just makes that really quick. You can get your assessment done under 15 minutes or so if you have everything set up and running smoothly. I think that's the kick, right? If you have it all set up and running smoothly. So we'll talk about that as for the topic of the day, <laughs> which... <laughs> Now that you mention it. Yeah, well, we have no malware of the month, so yes, we're moving on to the topic of the day. Uh, logging. How many tricks does it take to get in a center of lo loggy pop? Okay, so that's our topic. And, uh, well, let's... Yes, send us your comments about what we took that from. <laughs> right. So the reason we invited Jim on the podcast was he did tweet out um, at some time in the not-too-distant past that Seam, Sim is incredibly hard and complex to do right. It takes hundreds, thousands of man hours to tune it well and have a rich actionable and have rich actionable data. Most people want a quick fix so they fail miserably. Jim, you want to kind of explain what your thinking was and maybe what happened to inspire that particular tweet? Well, over the years I've seen a lot of companies go with one sim product only to then replace it after, you know, 3 to 5 years claiming that the sim itself is garbage, move on to another product, repeat the process. And I really feel that the problem lies in people are bringing in too much data that has zero relevance to either um, security or an operational task. And they're not going through the hard process of understanding their data and understanding what this means in context of their business and their risk and making sure that they get what they need to answer the questions that they want to know about their environment. And my response to his tweet, which started this whole thing, and now we have this episode, was, hmm, disagree. And this podcast was born. <laughs> okay, you, you, fight! Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, what is difficult about, you know, audit logging and, and log management and, and SIM, and we don't even get into what log management versus SIM is. I generally call it log management, just to simplify things, instead of security, incident, and event management. 
but you know, again, security security buzzwords and product selling and all that. I call it log management. There there are challenges here, right? If you take a typical Windows box, I do this in training when I do malware discovery. I infect a box with something like Drydex. Don't I don't configure a darn thing, and then I I run logmd in the box and say, here's the malware. And in the end, and so when I do the malware discovery training. I show this Drydex being executed and I show what you get by a default log, which is nothing. And I mean nothing. There's nothing to tell you that the box got infected. And then we go through the configuration of the box, do the proper configuration. Uh, again, configuration. There's configuration, the three C's, configuration, coverage, completeness. And so the first thing, turn the stuff on. Now let's infect the box. Now let's see what we can see, right? So there's that piece. Enabling it is in right, enabling the right things. A lot of companies install sims, log management, whatever. And I think they fail because they think it's supposed to collect things that aren't there. Uh, I have run across that a lot. I don't know what your experience is, Jim. I, I want to know. That's what we're here to talk about. But I see most companies seriously failing right then and there because they, they buy the sim product. They think it's an easy button. They put an agent on, but they don't realize that there's configuration that has to occur. And I know in your show notes, you kind of cover the three C's uh, similarly, but hell, you know, you need to realize that stuff is not turned on by default and that you have to configure the agent to collect the right things, which means updating GPO, turning on logs like task scheduler, etc., for it to be, you know, at all good. So let's start there and talk about that. Do you think that's an easy task, hard task? Is it the easiest, easy, medium, hard? What do you think? Um, the configuration portion is is difficult. Um, if you're just talking about configuring Windows to do its logging properly, your cheat sheets are an incredible place to start, and that will get you, you know, 80 to 90% of the way of where you need to be in your environment. The rest of the way will be with tweaking and understanding your own data and figuring out what stuff that's in there do you want to keep and what do you want to throw out? Those kind of cheat sheets for Linux and for individual applications like Apache and its logs, they're not there. Yeah, they just don't exist. You start pulling in Cisco logs, start pulling in WAF logs, and they've got all these different formats and configuration options and as the security guy, the various teams are going to expect you to go to them and say, hey, I need you to turn on these configuration features on, you know, maybe 10, 15 products in your environment at a minimum. And you're going to have to know what that data is and how it's relevant. But if it's a new product that you've never played with yourself, it's kind of hard to know what to tell them to enable. Right. Yeah, and generally what you have to do is you have to get the logs collected, and those of us that parse the logs, the security analysts, have to go through it and say, okay, let's see what's in there. And, you know, like AWS logs, we have to decipher all those keys and codes and user ID codes and all the things to figure out, okay, Bob logged in and spun up this instance, right? We have to we have to analyze that to figure out exactly what it is the log is telling us to be able to figure out what it is we want to keep and then say, you know, you can throw all this away. Let's not collect it, which is part of the set the right thing. So I see that as a, a big caveat for companies too, is they turn on all this stuff and then they send it all to a SIM and their license gets blown up or their disk gets full, right? Or they overwhelm their equipment uh, because they didn't do this in a series of steps saying, let's get it turned on. Let's get a sample set. Let's look at it. And yes, you have to collect all the things for that one application to be able to see everything to make your baseline to say, I want this. I don't want this. Do you guys need that? No. Okay. Let's get rid of it. Right. You, you use Splunk. So the concept there is you send it to 
the universal forwarder on Windows can parse at the agent, but on other universal forwarders it cannot. And so you send it to a heavy forwarder or syslog to, to another heavy forwarder, however you want to configure your environment, and you parse it out there. You say, ah, throw these messages out, which we're going to talk about in a second. In Humio or Elk, you can use Kafka or something like that to where you'll send the data, do your parsing there, and then it goes off to your Humio or your Elastic engine so you only have the things that are right. But you do have to go through this you know, logical step of turn the application logs on, Oh, yeah, don't do that. Uh, let's throw all that out. But I need that. Well, how often do you need that? Only when we have to research something, which is how often? Probably once a quarter. Yeah, you don't need to fill up your logs with that kind of stuff. You can manually go look at the server for that sort of thing, right? So you have to define, you know, what do you want in your log management solution? What period of time do you want it there for? And how often do you use it in order to help you kind of craft that uh, what the right things is? Yeah. See, I can see the difficulty in this, right? Because... First, you got to collect the right things. Do you collect it locally? Do you send it up to uh, log management? Then your next step is you got to parse that data, right? You've identified what you want to collect. Now you got to parse it. And uh, we've seen that sometimes that can be very difficult depending on what, uh, what your source is of that data. You ever tried to parse PowerShell logs? <laughs> the three variants of the logs, <laughs> the three different pieces and parts with the slash new line slash <laughs> carriage return stuff that isn't the same across all different. Th- yeah. It's it's uh, the PowerShell logs and windows are incredibly different than the rest of the logs and windows. It, it It's quite painful to be honest. Inconsistent, inconformant. Yeah. Uh, different every time and not. Yeah. And now look at the 4104s, which have no formatting, just big barfs of data that uh, Microsoft doesn't care to give you some intelligence around. Fortunately we did. Uh, we do have a parser for, um, PowerShell logs. Yes, we have LogMD. Does great. Version two point one. It's going to be awesome. Is awesome. But yeah, you got to parse it. I mean, I'm I'm sure most people that that are in this business have run across something that they had to parse out in order to get the right data or to get it to for their sim to be able to visualize that and, and categorize all those fields, right? Well, yeah, like in Splunk, we have to make a transform. So you have to take the data and the format that it's coming in and say, oh. Well, these characters here make up the date timestamp. These characters here make up the user ID. These characters here make up this, and that's the message. And and so it can be readable in a, in a screen context, right? Because logs by default don't have that. And if it's custom written applications, uh, there sure isn't a transforms on the Splunk store. In, in Humio, you have to build a parser. And so you have to take a sample of that data. You have to put it in the in the parser thing and start creating it and saying, okay, here's my delimiter. And here's the amount of characters I want to stop here. And, and then that way that the data comes out. And that is time-consuming, especially in application logs. I'm sure, Jim, Jim, you've seen having to go through all the different applications that nobody writes an application the same. And so every application has to be chopped up and parsed completely differently from a previous one unless you're really good and you have a logging standard. Oh, absolutely. Um, Developers come up with their own standard for how they want the log and how it's going to be relevant to them at the time. But it won't be relevant in the future. On the window side alone, just in the event logs, the parsing is easy if you're going to be sticking with English. But if you have a multi-language environment, um, the parsing gets incredibly difficult. Uh, when you start looking at logs coming in in French, Kanji, Russian, you have to go in and tweak all of your parsers just to make sure that you're getting the data extracted the way you want it to be. And 
that just adds a whole new level of headaches. <laughs> yeah, wow. I can imagine. I can definitely imagine that. Have not experienced that yet so far. All the foreign entities I've dealt with have been in, in English. Uh, we did have one that was in Polish that we worked with that definitely showed us the difficulties of that. Yeah, part, well, of course, you have to have a, a log solution, and they're all different. You have Elasticsearch on one end that is free, and then you have Splunk on the other end, which is expensive, but it's easier. So which one do you choose? Which one is right for you? There's all kinds of uh, different uh, solutions in between. This is probably another big failure area. I know, and lots of people have talked, you know, hey, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? We have a log channel on the Slack, BDS Slack, that uh, some people have used, you know, Logrhythm or, or Elk or Greylog or whatever. Uh, some large companies may be wanting to do more with the tool than it's capable of and, and had issues, right? They they did what Jim said. They tried it. It burned out. It didn't work. And then they said, we're going to switch tools and try it again. And so what are your requirements? What kind of performance requirements? What kind of ingestion? Uh, what kind of hardware are you going to dedicate to it? You know, how many instances of this stuff, you know, search heads in the Splunk terms or clusters are you going to dedicate to this environment? You know, what kind of disk are you going to, are you going to use spindles? Are you can use SSDs, combination of both. Are you can use S3 buckets, you know. Um, there, there's a lot to consider here the larger you get in regards to the subject um, and, and whether or not it performs way, the way you expect it. And, and Jim, I'm guessing that's how a lot of people failed in the early days when hardware wasn't as fast as it is today and, you know, sheer quantity that some companies probably just <laughs> drop kicked and threw into it thinking this thing will, you know, suck it up no problem and, and didn't really consider um, the growth pattern and, and the sheer volume in the, you know, periods of times between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. And, and how much data can be sent to these solutions. Yeah, that burst amount of data that comes in between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m., that's something you definitely have to plan for on any of your systems. I haven't seen any kind of log system where you don't have collectors that get data and then do your parsing for it and then forward it up to another tier to do some additional parsing until you ultimately get to your search feature. That seems to be consistent across most of the items that I've seen. And while you might plan for, yeah, I can process 100 million events with this log collection gear over 24 hours, no problem. But if you're going to be collecting 80% of your logs in that eight-hour period, you're way undersized for what you need to do. Yeah, for sure. A uh, question for you. Now, I always call it log management because, you know, what is SIM really? Security and event and incident management. What do you what do you think? Is is SIM just a buzzword, or do you think there's something to it, or or is is the solution do something unique? The whole correlation component. What do you what do you uh, think about the SIM versus log management terms? I'm personally good with both of them. The one defining factor for me is log management will always give you access to your raw logs, whereas a SIM may not. A SIM might just give you access to some metadata about the logs and maybe snippets about the logs. Or all the final things that they did to correlate that, you know, Bob logged into 100 systems, but you can't see that raw data. Hey, that's a good point. All right. So then once you do that, you got to start writing queries. And this is where it can get a little, you know, tough because you have to learn the language of your log management solution and be able to write queries in that solution. But what, what, Queries do you write? How do you know what's valuable? Yeah, starting here is tough because I've tested 
a lot of cloud solutions, uh, you know, anything from Simulogic to Humio to Elk to you know, Splunk to uh, the company that uh, uh, Logly that I used to use, uh, the company that Rapid7 bought. Um, there, there's lots of them out there, right? And every one of them have a different query language. So you have to get you know, pretty good with that. And the more you use a product, the better you get. Um, you know, I'm constantly asking people, hey, how do you do this weird, funky thing? And, you know, some solutions have more on the Googles than others. And, and yeah, you, you there's a learning curve here for sure. It's a bell curve because once you get to a certain point, you are probably going to get to the point where you can write 80% of the queries you need. And that thing you ran into, like when Brian and I were trying to parse a, a lookup file and we had more than one one column we wanted to parse, um, that was a challenge. I worked on it. Brian worked on it. And finally, Brian got it to work. Um, but it was a lot of trial and error. And, you know, finally, it was really valuable because we got an alert that said, hey, this bad IP occurred on Bob's box. But we didn't know if it was it was from a ransomware, what month that that alert was from. And so we were able to put those additional columns, which gave us the, you know, IRID and then the the thing we called it ransomware or cred stealer or whatever. So now we had some context along with the alert. And that was uh that was painful, um, much like creating the PowerShell queries was painful. Um, and so, yeah, building queries is definitely a bell curve scenario that you will have to learn. And uh, love or hate it, it'd be kind of hard for someone to evaluate a log management solution and say, uh, okay, I'm going to go in here and do this. And unless you're familiar with the query language, I, th- I think, uh, I think A, that's probably why you love one product over another because you've already learned their query language and you don't want to learn another one because you knew how hard it was to learn that one. Uh, but this is definitely a challenge for, I think, people and definitely where the, you know, takes thousands of hours uh, comes into play because clearly this is where you will spend most of your time for sure. What do you think, Jim? Oh, for sure. You start off with some, it, you start off with high fidelity queries that you're going to just be checking things like run keys and schedule tasks. You're going to write your queries and they're going to be dirty and floppy and inefficient, but hopefully they'll be effective. And you'll start to build up your skill set over time and start to look for more obscure artifacts and build deeper and deeper into the platform and as you learn things. But then several months down the road, you're going to go back and you're going to hit this ceiling where your search capabilities have been maxed out because your original queries are just so slow and inefficient that you have to go back, optimize them, make them better. And it's a constant process of make something work, then make it more efficient and then make it as optimal as you can possibly get so you can cram as much value out of your product that you can get. Yeah, we, we found that along with that lookup list that uh, Brian and I worked on for a while that uh, some of the trials and tribulations of that was, depending if you did it one way, it took, what, an hour? Did another way, it took five minutes. <laughs> as an example of just slight idiosyncrasies of query languages. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you could... You could do one little thing and screw up your whole query where it just crashes. Maybe not literally crashes it, but uh, just takes all the resources and sucks it right out of your server that's hosting your log management solution. Now, what's great about these products is you can take log data from different sources and correlate them together based on, well... This guy was using this server, but he also used this account. He also did it, at, you know, some net spawn, some network traffic. And, and you can bring all that together and put all your information in one query, right? Which brings us to alerts. How do you 
get these things to the right people at the right time so they can act on them. Now, this is a challenge I see a lot of people struggle with because most of these log engines will have a report query kind of thing and then an alert option. And generally an alert is nothing more than a query running at a scheduled time that will then do something like email or send a Slack and, you know, like Homeo can send stuff to Slack. Uh, all of them can send stuff to email, though the free versions of uh, Elk do not. You have to add a, an add-on to, to get the alerting to work. Um, again, hacking or free solutions is time-consuming. That's another reason why thousands of hours might be spent just hacking some of the stuff. Brian can tell you about his experience trying to get Elk running in AWS. And so what is it you make an alert out of? And I think the big mistake here, there was a study that someone released recently and talked about how companies are overwhelmed. There was a research done, I think it was done by Red Canary, that people buy these tools and are overwhelmed by alerts. I think it's because people need to define what an alert is. Um, I think if you have... A typical analyst can probably take 18 to 24 alerts, which are, you know, let's just call them emails at this point that end up in your inbox, whatever your consumption mechanism is. And that's about all an analyst is going to be able to handle a day. And we heard in the attacks on the retail with Target that they had millions and millions of Mandian alerts, yada, yada, going, fire eye alerts going crazy. Those aren't alerts. Those are notifications. Alerts are things that if you get, you look at, and you should immediately consume to say, yet we're okay, or B, I need to I need to look into this deeper and act upon it, or you're certain, hey, this is really bad because it's a it's a zero-defined item. Like, let's say you've got a bunch of auto runs and all of a sudden a new auto run that's really weird shows up, and, and usually this is a very quiet area. It, it should be something that's very and highly actionable that you will do something. It will be assigned to somebody. And I think people overwhelm. They turn a lot of these reports into alerts, and they're not. They're notifications. And you should take the alert and say, okay, my playbook says take this alert, go run those two other reports, get more data, and then you know act upon it, right? But alerts should be minimal. Uh, they should be very concise. They should be very actionable. Um, not just, hey, someone logged in. Hey, someone failed to log in. Hey, someone logged out. No, 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 no. You have to really look at that data, crunch it, and, and again, malware management. What's the kinds of things like SMB? Well, they're going to go, Bob's going to log into one box, two box, three box, four. Okay, let's look at let's look at user logging into more than five boxes because I looked and that just doesn't happen and I'm going to set that up as an alert because then when it does happen, you know it's highly highly actionable and highly valuable, right? And so that's that's something that you have to manage. Um, small amount of alerts, even though we have hundreds of them, they a lot of them rarely go off, but they're if they go off, oh boy, you got to seriously look at them. Like a new DLL being added to the WMI, WBM directory, uh, that's a bad thing. If WMI loads, it side loads a DLL. So any new DLLs that might show up if you're logging Sysmon um, and you're collecting ID7, you would like go, hey, what's a DLL doing in WMI directory, uh, WBM? And so stuff like that, you, you definitely want to set up. Be careful. Alert must be acted upon. If it, you're not getting up out of your chair or quickly can throw it out by just a glance, then uh, turn it into a report and a dashboard and and maybe you know end of day activity where you go review things based on the on the alerting. That's that's my take on alerts. Your turn, Jim. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. One of the things, uh, just to add to the stuff that you were saying, with an alert, you should have a lot of enrichment to your data. You should answer the question within that alert. Hey, here's an IP. Well, you should also add this subnet is in this location. It has this kind of data in this subnet. Here's why this is important and why you should act upon it. Same with your users. You, you have to add some context to it. 
You have to go through the process of just breaking down your entire environment and saying, here are our low priority users, our medium priority users, high and These are our most critical users. If something's going off on this one, do your investigation, grab some data, but you need to escalate that to a- another person. Along with just the enrichment of the data, um, another thing that I see in environments that causes problems is threat intelligence feeds and people generating alerts just based off of simple things like, here's an IP or here's a hash. And how many alerts can a person possibly get about someone visiting an IP address that has 10,000 sites on it where only one of them is malicious and actually actually action that? Or how many times a day can you get an alert saying, we found the hash for PSExec in the environment, knowing full well that your administrators are using it? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point, right? Because, again, your IDS gives you an IP address. Great, you get an alert that the IDS triggered something bad. You got Emetet on IP address 10.1.2.3. Great. Uh, now what? Who is 10.1.2.3? Join that to your uh, Windows event logs, which will tell you it's Bob. Hey, Bob. Now, where is 10, where is 10.1.2.3? Ah, it's in the, you know, uh, Dallas office. Great. I know Bob is in Dallas, right? And so there's a lot of info that you need to build into these alerts so that they can give you information. Again, the hours you spend building the queries, which then get turned into alerts to really help you automate. Um, and, and Brian and I, you know, really complain about this a lot saying we need this log entry. We need DHCP. We need the wireless logs. Cause when somebody connects their laptop to wireless, we need to know what office they're on so we can say, hey, which which help desk guy do I contact? Uh, which office are they in? Um, so really good point, Jim, because you really do need to add that context. And if it's a you know IDS alert or any kind of network traffic, how about the geolocation information? It's talking to a site in Russia. It's talking to a site in China. Um, geolocation is pretty much available in, in most logging solutions. So utilize that. It may be somewhat inaccurate with the trading and selling of IP addresses, but man, it, it's it's a good place to start. And it really does help you refine what it is you're, you're going to do or whom you're going to contact. So a uh, really good point there to expand upon how alerts can help you. Oh, go ahead, Jim. You also you also save your analysts a lot of time from having to do those manual lookups. If you know this user is logged on to this IP and you can just enhance your alert by saying, this is the user, here's their contact information for, for that IP address, um, what country is this in, they don't have to go through your PAM solution or your directory and do the lookups. And, you know, if you save 10, 15 minutes just looking up that information, that's a huge win. And that really makes your product a lot better. Brian and I, I, I Brian, I, I'm just going to die laughing at what he just said because him and I have had some serious struggles because we wanted our DHCP logs into uh, our log management solution because we would look up our PAM solution and the IP had already been reissued to someone else because of the wandering wireless scenario and it only pinged every four hours. So it was completely inaccurate and it was almost laughable about how much time that actually completely wasted us. So <laughs> you hit it right on the head there. Whereas we linked to DACP, there's an important point here. Um, understand the tool suites that you have and the network guys, when you ask them to block an IP address, they're going to ask you for the Mac of that 
system. And the DHCP logs have the MAC address. So understand how some of this blocking technology might work so that you can include that in your alert so that if, you know, something really bad's going on, you call network and say, I want you to block this IP. They say, what's the MAC address? Save them the time and say, here's the MAC, here's the IP, here's the location, and they can go to the right box, get that that change put in and, and whack that user really quickly, uh, which we've had to do with some wireless scenarios, right? Yeah, your alerts are more accurate in that respect and timely. Yep. It's it's crazy to think that your IT department would have you go through or have the employees go through so much, like fill out all these forms and all this stuff to get on the wireless network. All right, when you finally do all that, then when an employee does something that you don't approve of, all of a sudden you don't know who they are or where they're coming from. It's amazing. Now, to correlate these logs, then you know those scenarios right away and you can act on them. Yep. And and alerts aren't things like every hour you get a query, everything's good, everything's good, everything's good. Well, eventually you won't get one when something's bad, right? How do you notice? Okay, do you need another alert to alert you on when you didn't get an alert? You know, these things have to be action. And, and these alerts also are going to help you with the purple teaming. If you have a red team doing their thing and you have consultants coming in doing their thing, um, these alerts will be what it is that happens. Like we, you know, we had a wireless assessment in the past, and they, you know, managed to do their foo, um, found a box, got the, you know, account created. Our alert went off, and then I went back and said, okay, it's purple team time. Let's see what they did. They gave me a couple pieces of information. I went and found all those things, and I think we created five additional alerts that were incredibly non-noisy. Um, and again, there's some refinement, which is the next bullet that you have to do, you turn you turn an alert on, and all of a sudden it finally triggers. You're like, oh, yeah, that was that, that didn't quite work exactly like I need to do some adjustments, and thus refinement starts to kick in. And that, that's another time consumer, right? You have to refine what it is you think worked in your initial testing, but then as you start monitoring the entire environment, you find uh, uh, things aren't quite what they seemed, and you have to refine your alerts. Uh, that's, that's definitely a, a cyclical process of constant refinement. It's not... You create it once and you'll never have to tweak it again. Uh, you will have to definitely tweak it. Right. And you see this in a lot of methodologies. You, you go back and you refine. You go to the beginning and you refine into the constant circle of getting better. How much time do you spend in refinement, Jim? Uh, too much. A little bit every day or every week? Too much time is definitely spent. Um, I set aside at least several hours on every Friday to do some refinement and some testing of things. I have a rule of um, read only on Fridays, so we can do our testing, we can try out new things, we can write documentation, but let's not try to change anything in prod on a Fridays. Yeah, I try to when I see stuff like you know, PowerShell, another example of PowerShell is um, some job, some new inventory thing, whatever the heck PowerShell is running, some new bamboo push, whatever it is, we'll kick off a, a module load that I have to go figure out what the heck that module is and find something in that 4104 event that I can say, I know this is perfectly normal. I can totally read this clear as day code. Uh, how can I make this go away so it doesn't keep popping up every end of the month, right? And so I try to do that as, as much and as fast as I can in the course of that day. I usually leave those emails open to remind me before I close them all at the end of the day to try to say, you know, hey, this needs refining. Sometimes I get to it, sometimes I don't. But um, again, it helps you in the long run as you turn off, you know, baseline your environment and turn off the noisy stuff so that uh, when you get these alerts. But it is important, you should set up tests so that every one of your alerts can be testable, whether you write a script 
that you launch from your box or a server so that you can trigger all alerts just to make sure everything's working. Because what happened if some greenhorn accidentally disabled something? You really want to know that something did not trigger that should have. So that's part of the process, too. That's definitely something if uh, an organization has a red team coming in to make sure that they highlight that that's one of the deliverables that they're going to get. We want to know how you did this test and how can we have an administrator reproduce this so we can generate this type of event again in the future. Yep. All right. Endpoint collection. So um, this is this is the part. This kind of feeds into the final bullet points of what you we have in the show notes, and we'll, we'll explain it. Um, Jim put something out there that I think is, is really important. I get asked this question a lot. How much data is a workstation or server going to generate in my endpoint collection? And the answer always is I don't know because a, it depends on what you collect. B, you know, if you were to say server A and then compare that to domain controller A, yeah, there's no comparison. You have a kajillion login events happening on a domain controller, which you do not happen have happening on a, on server A, which is just some server. And so the endpoint collection becomes important because of what you're collecting. So example, uh, we had a, do, a domain situation. I, I want to say it probably ended up being a part of migration from like 2008 to 2012. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not 100% certain because the problem kind of went away. Um, but we had a, a reaching of a license issue. And so uh, our manager said, you know, go work on it and see what kind of things you might be able to throw out. And I'm always, Brian and I, constantly looking at things we can throw out. I mean, it's a discussion we almost have weekly. And it's not just because we want to worry about license. It's also because it's performance of queries. Um, it's just storage it's it's everything good you need to do is reduce how much you're collecting it's it's incredibly important over the long term speed retention uh performance etc uh, etc et and we had a condition where we were getting some ridiculous amount of logins like 50 million logins uh, a week or whatever that stupid number was it was stupid high and we found that i don't know what was it better like a dozen people were generating 70% of all the login traffic. There was some condition that was just erroring that caused a reauth, 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 reauth for these users thousands and thousands and thousands of time. And and we had a report that generally, it, it took so long to run because, again, it's domain controller data, over a 24-hour period and over a week to, um, we did that one on the weekend because that was when the obviously the traffic's less, to see who's generating all these things and, and can we fix this thing that's generating all these logins because they're surely not needed if it's coming from 20 people when there's, you know, 5,500 people. It magically disappeared, oddly. But it's this kind of stuff you have to look at in regards to what to collect. What can you turn on? You can find errors. And in some cases, I know people will just say, well, just turn that off. It's not that valuable, right? Wait a minute. But it's a requirement in the CIS benchmark to collect it. But because it's really noisy, you're going to turn it off because you want to go figure out why it's broken. So collecting what you're collecting is important. Uh, you do have the ability of tweaking it on the endpoint in some cases. And I know Jim's going to have a different take on where to do this. Probably a Splunk example. But... There's a lot of options here. The WinLog beat and the file beat that I mentioned earlier as a tool, as much as you can reduce on the endpoint as you determine, I don't need to see that, is really cool. The less data you send per endpoint, the less data you're parsing when you're running a report, the less time or expense of the query, meaning how much hardware time and, and resources it takes on the, on the log servers. Um, there's just so many benefits of really looking at endpoint collection and reducing it. And Jim has a really excellent 
uh, reduction method he's using. And, and I know I've talked about this and I have some reduction mechanisms in there, but I've never quite done it like Jim is about to tell us about. So away you go with your 4624s, that last email you sent me. It is at the bottom of the show notes and how you take that worthless message data and the value of reduction and endpoint collection that helped you with and, and how you go about doing it. All right. So I went through all my log entries and I started to pick out the items that were the largest collectors of data, which ones were using up the most storage space. And as I started to go through them, I noticed that on Windows 7 and older versions of 2008, um, there is a lot of extra data in um, a lot of the events that are just a description of what is happening in this event and how do you just decipher this event log. So on like event code 4624, just for a successful login, I think there's somewhere around like one kilobyte of extra data for every logon event that happens. And 1K doesn't sound like a lot of data, but when you do that 20 million times, 40 million times a day, that starts to add up. And that starts to really just blow out your license. It really adds a ton of extra stuff for you to search through that you don't need to have. So what I did was I created a bunch of regular expressions that just when I'm ingesting the logs through my systems, we go to that description portion of the message and just cut it off. Just throw it in the garbage and then take the actual valuable data that you want in those logs. Now, if you wanted to later on in your system, you could easily create just uh, CSV and just add that as enrichment data to those log files and you will have the same effect in in your views. You can see all that description text if you want it, but you don't have to waste the storage space. You don't have to waste the search capacity in the environment. It's just a very simple thing you can do to save yourself a lot of space. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this only for the pain, but it make the perfect point. That's a 4624. I'm going to read the section that he's saying basically chop off, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, so here we go. This at the bottom of all the messages, so 4624, and a domain controller that has talked about tens of millions of logins occurring, right? Every user logs in probably three, four times an hour with mail and, and AD and Kerberos, all that, right? This event is generated when a login session is created. It is generated on the computer that was accessed. The subject fields indicate the account on the login system which requested the login. This is the most commonly, this is most commonly a service such as server service or local process such as winlogin.exe or services.exe. The login type field indicates the kind of login that occurred. The most commons are two, interactive, three, network, yada, yada, yada. It goes on for another 20-something sentences. So we're never going to use this data ever, 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 ever. And the fact that you're collecting this for every login that occurs is stupid because it's worthless. And so, uh, Jim, you make a fantastic point on just the sheer volume you can reduce. It's actually probably as long as the 4624 event of the stuff we do want. And, and so you're throwing out literally half of each login event message, and, that, and that's that's brilliant. I've never really discussed it in that aspect. I do parse things down, and, and there are going to be challenges with the solution you're using um, in regards to the A, the agent you use, can it do that? And B, in your case, Jim, I believe you send everything to a heavy forwarder, do it there, and then send it off to the Splunk server where then the indexing uh, license count occurs. Um, and so now you're ingesting less 
KB and thus saving on licensing. So um, brilliant. And that is in the show notes at the end. I would say you're getting rid of 90% or more of that log entry. Oh, it's it's ton. Yeah, because a lot of the log entries are very short, right? And this is this is 20-something sentences. All you need is like the time, the uh, computer, and the and the username, right? A couple more pieces of information. Nothing like that huge page no. No. of text. Yeah, so Microsoft right. probably should give us an option and just call that uh, comment. So we can just say, not comment, and blow it all away, make it easy. Simple change in Windows event logging, maybe. Please, Microsoft, if you're listening, the, make that change. <laughs> the, no, the good thing is, is in newer versions of Windows, I think somewhere around 2012 R2, Microsoft realized that this is a really bad thing to do, and they have now taken that out of the log events. Awesome. So that really pertains to Windows 7, 2008, and I think 2008 R2 as those effects in um hopefully most people will have all that out of their environment within the next year or two but right. i know most enterprises still have those legacy systems around and they will they should take a look at that and see what they can really save yeah and, and nobody has xp anymore <laughs> <laughs> so reduction and of noise it doesn't hurt your endpoint because that's all uh under the covers the the data that that is different for every log entry is, uh, of course, in binary. And there's just uh, a link based on 4624 or whatever log ID you have, either your event ID. That's only in the log data once, right? That whole paragraph yeah. on the endpoint. But then when you forward it, you make millions of millions copies, of, copies of, it, yeah. of that as you forward it. So that's where that's where it falls short. So good, good thing Rick, Windows recognize that. Yeah. Reduction of noise. So this is tying on to endpoint collection of stuff. So reduction of noise. Um, anytime that you make a not statement, um, whether it's Humio, my, my favorite uh, solution for my home lab and, and everything, uh, or Splunk or Elk, or whatever. Anytime you make a not statement, think of it as a opportunity for reduction of noise. If you're not nodding out something, you should seriously ask your, yourself a question like all these messages we just talked about. Uh, I don't need that field. I don't need that field. Do we need to collect it? Is this an item I need to collect? And, and for example, the Splunk Universal Forwarder has, what is it, nine, eight, nine, ten entries of, you know, Splunk PowerShell this, Splunk this, that, and the other thing. All the different pieces and parts of the Splunk Universal Forwarder and all the things that run that trigger every minute to five minutes uh, takes up a lot of entries. And I don't need to see that in my log entries. I may keep one of them to make sure I can tell if Splunk is installed on the on the agent or whatnot. But if I'm collecting data, then right, I know it's there. This reduction of noise, if I not this, not that, seriously consider backing up to your your again putting it on the endpoint means you're dis, you're uh, distributing the load of processing of reduction of information across all your endpoints, thus saving on the server or the collection points. Um, which is the optimal place to do it, but not every agent will have that ability. Like all your network stuff doesn't have that ability. You're going to send it to syslog, parse it there, send it to heavy forwarder, etc., a Kafka server, uh, a Kanza server, what you know, or Kanza survey, uh, a Kibana server, whatever, wherever you can do that that reduction and, and whack it before you get it into the database end is significant. So as you not something, not something. Consider that an opportunity of reduction of noise. And so I'm constantly doing that when I'm refining my Humio stuff. I'm like, I don't need to see that. 
So let's figure out a way to get rid of it. I, I'm struggling with the file beat and the way to do that because you have to use the regex. And I do want to get rid of um, some stuff. And I think doing it in the file beat, right? You're consuming files. There's a lot of nefarious noise in files. So I should be able to whack those lines before I collect them. Um, because I'm putting a bunch of not statements in because I haven't figured out how to do that yet. But that's a great opportunity. Reduction of noise. And this is how you'll build, you know, your application server people, especially, or even your network. This is where you'll figure out what ASA event IDs you, you don't need as a security person. The network guys may need them. And you'll have to meet with them and say, do we need this? Do we need this? I can tell you from analyzing our ASA environment uh, a couple years ago, 90, it was ridiculous. 99% of all the data was generated by like, what was it? 10 event IDs. And, and so all the other event IDs were like, oh, we can turn all this stuff off. no. It's less than 1%. Matter of fact, I think it was less than one-tenth of 1%. So leave all those on because you never know what might be valuable in that one little item. Let's focus at these big hitters. I think we turned off two or three of them. And that saved, you know, literally 20% of the data we collected, right? And so going through that not exercise and, and meeting with your people, uh, if you're evaluating an application, do we really need this? Do we really need this? Look at all this noise. I never look at that. Well, let's chop it. Let's not collect it. And then we don't have to see it. And then when you run your query, your index isn't as big and your database isn't as big. So it takes less time. It's faster. Don't fall into the trap of, okay, I, I have these different levels of logging I can do that are predefined. I can go level one, level two, level three, level four, level five. That's not where you want to go. You want to refine it on getting the things you need and not have them predefined into levels. Yeah, right? great Low, example. medium, high. Oh, I want to get rid of all the lows. Well, there may, might be some useful data from a security perspective that are in those lows, but you may not need several mediums and high. Yeah, great example, Cisco ASA logs. People say, I'm just going to turn off debug. No, 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 no. If you're using the Cisco VPNs, that's where the debug, the debug is where the logs of the VPN uh, details generally are, are kept. Um, and so those are very valuable. Granted, there are some noisy debug options, but fortunately, ASAs let you turn them off by event ID. So once you find those noisy things that no one wants, then you turn those off, leaving the debug items on that you want, collecting the VPN detail traffic, and you're you're in a win-win scenario. So perfect to, to Brian's point. Um, how do you, how do you go about it, uh, Jim? Right. I take a look at my log sources. Like let's take the ASAs for example. Um, the ASAs, if you're monitoring every connection going through that ASA. You have your setup of a connection and whether or not it's successful. And then you also have the teardown of that. Now, the teardowns are great if you're going to be monitoring how long has this connection been open. But if you're also uh, collecting NetFlow on your network, you already have that data in NetFlow. So do you really need those teardown messages? Can you get rid of things in, in that way? I mean, if you cut down on the teardown messages, you've cut down half of your firewall logs that you're bringing in. Perfect point. And if you've got it in the NetFlow, you can probably query it faster there than you could through your ASA log. Yeah, perfect point. And then uh, one of the things I recommend people do is they collect the Windows firewall logs, which can be very noisy, voluminous. They will be probably your number one event next to 4688 on a workstation. But you could, based on um, the fact that pretty much the you know, 51, 56 events in a Windows firewall log are, are talking, you know, showing the traffic back and forth that once something tells you that box is funky, you know, C users, app data, or C users, Bob, app data, local, Microsoft, Windows, you know, SLS.exe uh, fired off and you don't have your Windows firewall logs on, you can easily make a GPO switch 
and say, now turn that on, collect it, you know, and then start seeing that traffic and look at it there for a short period of time, right? Do you have configurability with GPO that would allow you to see that traffic at a different place than your firewall logs, saving you a lot and being somewhat dynamic in what you turn on and off? Because generally Windows firewall logs are more useful when you're looking at the whole subset of what's going on in the box, but can be turned on after the fact to see what the communication is, etc. Um, because there is the Shrum logs, you also have some bytes in and out capability with Windows 8, 1, and 10, which is pretty valuable on a workstation, not available on server. And then use that along with your firewall logs, your your ASA type data and, and whatnot. And and you can play, right? You can you can turn things on, have a, have a process that has the guys flip a bit for turning this on and off on a you know, hey, drag these twenty workstations into this. OU so that the firewall logs will turn on now and then suddenly I have more data to be able to analyze. Um, there's lots of clever things you can do to create these short spikes that you can turn off when you're done with your event. So again, an, another opportunity for reduction of noise. Yeah, and uh, different brands. Let's let's stick to firewalls. Different brands like Palo Alto, different, a lot different than Cisco. So you need to know what you have, what they're capable of, and what's best for you when it comes to getting that data in your sim, querying and alerting on that data. Um, and, and speaking of other tools, AV logging and, and, and the logging agent, right? What, what's, what's special about this that we need to know about? So I've come across this, uh, in two places. One, Sysmon. Um, there are some AVs that do not like Sysmon. So if you do not create an exclusion for your Sysmon agent, which is a, another add-on free for Microsoft that collects a bunch more stuff, your AV, every time Sysmon's doing its thing on the box, your AVs asking Sysmon are checking Sysmon and saying, what the heck are you doing on the box? And suddenly your performance goes out the window. Jim mentioned this earlier. Another one is Brian and I have, have experienced this with LogMD is we run LogMD in a remote box. And we're like, it doesn't run this slow in our boxes. Well, we have AV turned off because we're dealing with malware and we don't want it to delete our samples. Um, and we have to sometimes email these to the vendors. We worked with Cisco uh, folks quite extensively when we first implemented one of their solutions. So you have to deal with this, right? And and we're, we're struggling with this. And finally, we got around to testing it. We're like, AV is like pounding on LogMD, right? So same thing with uh, your file beat agent, your WinLog beat agent, your Splunk Universal Forwarder, uh, make exceptions for AV to check this file in this location so that you don't have these performance issues. And Jim, you mentioned you came across this as well. Yeah, I've come across that. Um, when you're, you have two scenarios. You have one where your AV agent is going, why is this process scanning all these files? And why is it checking the logs repeatedly? And it's just, you're getting into a contention where you're, your one agent is trying to access the file and the other one's trying to also get a handle to that file so it can do its scanning and then they're fighting back and forth and it just slows down performance. And on the other side, you have your AV agents where if you're doing directory monitoring, when your AV agents kick off and they're going to do their scans on your file system, they're going to generate a lot of noise in your Windows logs. So they might fire off 10,000 alerts and one minute and if you're doing any kind of parsing with your with your collection agent you might run into some performance problems where that agent is normally handling you know maybe 500 to a thousand events being generated on a client in a day but now it has to generate deal with that 10,000 that were generated in one minute and if you went through your test cases 
and only expected to see those 500 events, you might not have the most efficient regex. You might not have the most efficient settings to deal with that extra load. And don't forget your EDR. As we learned with uh, LogMD, uh, Sentinel-1 was not kind to blocking us. You, the response was uh, create an exception. So uh, with your EDRs, you're going to have to do the same thing, right? You have to create an exception to say, no, this is a normal running thing. It's doing special stuff to the box. And if you interrupt that, um, A, you could block all your logging. And B, some of these don't have signature-based, digital signature-based exclusions. So you have to create manual whitelists for this stuff. And that, and it's just a reality reality of it. Yay! Windows Defender doesn't seem to have too much issue here. I think Microsoft has a fairly good list of stuff it shouldn't interfere with. I've not experienced these problems with Windows Defender, personally. So that brings us to the, the long list of event codes. <clears throat> now, these were samples, um, but I wanted to touch bases on a couple of them because um, they're interesting. So this list also, it's in the show notes, it's also got the list of messages to disappear, but I did want to ask Jim about why he thinks a couple of these are important. These are just a short list of things that he excluded and so I don't think they're a list. I would say probably refer to the cheat sheet and the Windows Advanced Login Cheat Sheet. But I wanted to touch bases. You've got 4624, successful login. 4625, failed login. 4634, logged off. Yep, I have been asked, did this employee, was they actually in the office? And how often did they log off in their box, right? Because the timer should do that and lock your workstation and, and whatnot. And, and so you can kind of tell whether or not people were actually at their desk in the office kind of thing. So there's there's some non-security, more HR-related items that the locked and logged off might be useful. Um, and when the bad guys left, potentially. But 4647, user-initiated log off. 4648, a login was attempted using explicit credentials. This is a very noisy event. So what are you looking for on this particular event code, if anything? I generally don't spend a lot of effort on this unless I'm really digging into something. I don't spend a lot of effort on it, um, but I do keep it around just for those times when I do need to dig into things. Um, it's one of those event codes that it can get noisy, but in those fringe cases, it does get very helpful. Yeah, so two things that are in there is what process is authenticating, much like a login, but um, there is a short list of things that normally do it. WinLogin, LSAS, Service Host, sort of like was in the description of the 4624, right? And so that's handy because if you have a bunch of weird things logging in, binaries you don't recognize, that's where this thing can become powerful. The other is target different from the host. So you can see when uh, my wife's computer is connecting to my computer and getting permission to, for example, do the backups. Um, And so you can catch kind of these sorts of things with this event. Um, But it's not something I normally trigger on, but it was in your list. So interesting uh, uh, item. 4688, most powerful one there is, but be sure to add command line logging to that one. Kerberos items. So 4768, 4769, 4770, 4771. The only thing I really, again, I don't trigger on these except for uh, the fact of Kerberos roasting detection when on a 4769 when the fail code is 0 by 0 and where the ticket encryption type is 0 by 17. I generally don't look at these. They are very voluminous. Obviously, Windows domains uh, use this extensively. What kinds of things are you triggering on? Anything interesting other than the Kerberosting kind of environment? Just on Kerberosting, but I find that these can be very helpful when trying to find how an account got locked out. That does come up a lot in, in my environment. Hey, this account the password reset on this one box. The user reset their account, but they they were logged on to another host at the same time. And then the Kerberos tickets then expire a week later. And then you can see the authentication events to find out 
why they're getting locked out. It's not really helpful on the security side, but they become very helpful for the operations guys and their troubleshooting. Good tip. All right, Brian, bring us home. What did we miss on the discussion of how how massive of, of uh, <laughs> how many thousands of hours we're going to spend on logging? Well, I, I think logging is one of the most important things that can be done for, and we talked about this in our stories, newsworthy items. One of the most important things you can do to be successful as a security team is to get these logs in place and make sure you uh, understand your environment, you alert on the things that you need to alert on based on what you've learned in malware management, and you're able to produce actionable alerts and refine those alerts. Not necessarily going to you, but members of the security and IT teams that need to know. I think to do it well, you've got to start off small. All right. People say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to collect all my workstations, all my servers. Whoa, 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 whoa. First, domain controllers are much different than probably every other server out there. So do one domain controller, get the understanding of what that's going to do, take 10 workstations of whatever your types of workstations are, get those collected, get some of your application servers, get a firewall log, um, understand like DHCP servers, right? For every assign in a DHCP server that occurs, there's probably four to 10 renews. So do I really need to know when the renews are or do I only need to worry about the assigns, another opportunity of significant reduction uh, or the DNS events that are also in the DCP log? You know, you can throw all these out, right? So turn this stuff on, <clears throat> start building slowly, get a subset and then grow it uh, across a, a percentage of that. You know, you go from 10 to 100 to 1,000 to 10,000. You don't go from, from 10 to 10,000, right? Um, and, and add these items on. We didn't, come into where we work now when uh, was who we, who we used to work for and say, we're going to turn it all on at once. We slowly, once we got things refined with, you know, servers and getting the base configuration loaded, we, you know, got DCP turned on, we got wireless turned on, right? And we kept refining, kept refining and improving, improving. So it grew over time and it probably took a solid year to get, you know, a lot of this turned on and then, you know, tweaking it. Don't try to sledgehammer the solution, grow slowly. And then you'll be able to answer the question, how much data does this take? Well, these servers, domain controllers take a lot. These servers do not. Uh, process creates don't happen a lot on, on servers. They happen a lot on workstations. Um, and so understanding those sorts of things will help you calculate what kind of impact to storage and licensing and all that you'll need. Um, it will help. And then throw that all out the window because when you start putting applications in there, uh, look out. Uh, floodgates is probably the wrong term. It's the dam breaking. Uh, you might be surprised at what some of these applications do. They are generally going to be the, the leading consumer of your logging license, uh, depending on what you collect and how well the logs are written. Um, so homework will need to be done there. But yeah, start off slow. Uh, start with the cheat sheets on the Windows side. Do the equivalent items in the cheat sheet to the Mac and, and Linux side. And, and, and go from there would be uh, my take. And, and yes, spend some time. Yeah, start start off slow, but the key thing is start. Yes. Right. And we were talking before the show about how famous, um, uh, what do you call it? Motivational speakers will uh, estimate that only about 1% of their audience will act on the valuable information that the speaker who, who is an expert in their field and has gone through all these things that he's talking about, no matter what topic, only 1% of the audience will actually go back to their jobs the next day and act on what they discussed in in the talk whereas the uh when you're there it's all like yeah i'm gonna 
I'm going to go do this. I'm going to be the best. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to take these, this, uh, this wise, uh, things that he, that, that I learned today and I'm going to go apply them. Well, very, very few people, uh, actually do that. So the, the, the key here is, are, are you going to be part of that 1%? Do you want to be in the 1%? All right. So, so if you find this podcast valuable, go back and act on it. Set up an environment for yourself. Go download uh, a sim like Humio, and, and it's free. Okay, so so build these tools for yourself. All right, Jim. Any any final words? I would just say know your environment, know your data. Make sure you create high fidelity alerts. Start small with it. Make sure everything that you're generating out of your log solution for an alert is actionable, and that your team knows how to action those alerts. You don't really need the big, fancy alerts to catch a lot of really malicious things in your environment. You just need clean data with a few simple tricks to catch, you know, a good portion of the bad stuff coming in. All right, guys, that's uh, Jim Schwar, our guest today. And and you can follow him on Twitter at Jimmy Defer, J-I-M-I-D-F-I-R. And his DMs are open, so if you want to start a discussion with him, go for it. He's uh, he's offered his his wisdom and experience and knowledge up for uh, discussion. You can also follow me. I'm at Betcherpone, B-O-E-T-T-C-H-E-R-P-W-N-E-D. My DMs are open as well if you want to start a discussion. Again, the 1%. I'm not inundated with people asking me questions or, or, or anything like that, no matter what the topic, uh, it's, it's kind of, uh, interesting. And then, um, follow Michael at hacker hurricane. You can also, uh, get to some of his content on, um, log md.com and get to all of our cheat sheets and everything. All of the cheat sheets that Michael has posted on malware archeology. span Also, uh, breaking down security Slack channel, join, via Slack channel to uh, associate with the like-minded. Okay, there's tons of channels on there. We've got a seam channel, right? We've got a defer channel, a, a hunting channel, all these different channels that you can go to and join and have discussions with people that are in your field doing the same things you're doing. Uh, there's, I don't know, a thousand people on there, but but it's divided into the certain fields as well. I think that's all we've got for today. Uh, breaking down incident response. Brian, Michael, and Jim signing off. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, guys.